The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled The Power and Promise of Immunotherapy in Head and Neck Cancer, How Established and Emerging Immune-Based Options Can Enhance Patient Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HVY860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Good evening. Uh, pleasure to be back in person tonight. My name is Robert Haddad. I'm a medical oncologist at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, and it's a pleasure to be with you here tonight with two of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Mera from uh, University of Maryland and Dr. Atkins from WashU. So let's start with a quick overview of the landscape of head and neck cancer in 2022. Uh, as we know by now, uh, we have uh, a major role of HPV infection in the uh, epidemiology of oropharyngeal cancer. This is uh, a, a problem mostly in the Western world. Uh, there's a high cure rate for these patients. Uh, there's a lot of strategies ongoing currently with treatment de-escalation for these patients. Uh, there's new staging system for HPV-related oropharynx cancer in the AJCC8. This is a, a new system that now we're using in clinic. Uh, as we all know, the mainstay of the curative treatment for these patients continues to be surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy in various sequences and combinations. Uh, the toxicity of these treatments obviously are high. For recurrent metastatic disease, uh, the treatment continues to be challenging, albeit I would say we now have new treatments available that we did not have in the past, primarily immunotherapy, which has made a big impact on how we treat patients with recurrent uh, and or metastatic disease. Uh, it is clear based on the research in the past five years that these agents, uh, the uh, immunotherapy or the checkpoint inhibitors are active and they improve survival and they have become the standard of care for the treatment of patients in the first line and second line recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. There's a big debate ongoing about the role of CPS, the combined positive score, the PDL1 expression, and how we can use that information to tailor therapy for our patients. So head and neck cancer obviously is highly symptomatic and patients have a lot of symptoms from this particular type of cancer. The impact of head and neck cancer on the quality of life is profound. Uh, there's a physiological impact, there's social function impact, uh, appearance, voice, uh, speech, taste, ability to work, uh, very high rate of depression in our patients, ability to socialize. So the impact of this cancer, unfortunately, is quite profound, requiring really a, a, an integrated multidisciplinary approach that brings together not only the medical oncologists, the radiation oncologists, and the surgeons, but also the nutritionists, the social worker, the psychologist, the speech and language pathologist. So really requiring an integrated approach uh, to manage patients with uh, head and neck cancer. And that is really essential for good outcome in this disease. Uh, it's really, uh, it's really suboptimal to not be treating these patients in a multidisciplinary setting with all these specialties available to them. Uh, when we are dealing with recurrent metastatic disease, uh, what do we look for? What are the goals of treatment? Obviously, we want to control symptoms. So if a patient has pain, we want to improve pain. If they're having difficulty swallowing or breathing, we want to improve those. We want to improve quality of life. 
want to control the disease, want to improve survival. That's key for these patients. Now, many head and neck cancer patients are compromised because they have a number of comorbidities. They could be heavy smokers, they could be heavy drinkers, they could have lung disease, they could have diabetes or heart disease. So obviously, as we look at how we tailor treatment for our patients, we look at the performance status, what other medical problems they have, what prior therapy they have received, again, what their symptoms are. So a patient who is symptomatic might require a different approach than someone who's completely asymptomatic. So we look at these really as try to design the best treatment for our uh, patients. Obviously, patient preference and logistics. Some of the agents we have can be given every six weeks or every three weeks or every four weeks. So there's some choice we have to make with our patients in trying to decide on what is the best approach for them. And biomarker, again, an evolving approach and how we use biomarkers to select treatment for our patients, and this will be discussed by uh, my colleagues later. This is a timeline of immunotherapy advances in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. So I would point out that currently in 2022, the checkpoint inhibitors are only indicated and approved for patients with recurrent metastatic disease. We are not at the stage where we can offer these agents to patients with curable disease in the definitive setting with radiation and chemotherapy. So the indications for, so that we have two agents approved in the U.S. for recurrent metastatic disease, pembrolizumab approved in 2016, actually was approved based on a phase two study, the Keynote 12. Nivolumab was approved in 2017 based on the Checkmate 141, and I'm gonna briefly show you these studies. And the 2019 was really a pivotal year for us in head and neck oncology with the uh, presentation, publication, and adoption of the Keynote 48 schedule of pembrolizumab with or without chemotherapy in the treatment of patients in the first line recurrent metastatic disease. And that now has become the de facto standard of care for these patients. So again, the treatment landscape is evolving uh, in the surgery, radiation, chemo, EGFR, cetuximab in particular is FDA approved for head and neck cancer. And now obviously the focus has been, now that we know that immunotherapy works in the recurrent metastatic setting, we're gonna hear from Dr. Atkins of how we can potentially move these agents into the curative setting of head and neck cancer there's a lot of exciting data about neoadjuvant immunotherapy. We continue to await the results of some of the landmark trials with concurrent radiation and immunotherapy and chemo, and also some of the trials that have been completed in the adjuvant setting. So we're gonna hear from Dr. Atkins about the integration of immunotherapy into the curative setting, and what is the research telling us so far, and where do we go from here? So what are the next steps with immunotherapy and the unmet needs to address in head and neck cancer? Number one, can novel PD-1-based combination or new modalities improve outcomes in recurrent metastatic disease? We will hear uh, uh, about this uh, from Rani. And this is really the idea about, we know what a checkpoint inhibitor can give us, but can we do better? What can we do better? There was an exciting presentation, for example, last night at ASCO, oral session head and neck, about the combination of pembrolizumab with cabozantinib, and we'll hear from uh, Rani about, about these types of combination, how we can think about them. <clears throat> 
And then will emerging PD-1 inhibitors play a role in the, for example, nasopharyngeal carcinoma settings where we have seen really nice data recently uh, with combining chemotherapy with a checkpoint inhibitor? And again, as I mentioned, we'll hear from Dr. Atkins about the definitive setting. So this is the agenda for today. And uh, I want to thank also the partners of putting together this program, the Head and Neck Cancer uh, Alliance. So John is 61-year-old university professor with a history of stage 3 laryngeal cancer that was treated with platinum radiation five years ago. He now has new onset shortness of breath and has a chest CT that shows bilateral lung nodules. The largest is 8 millimeter. A biopsy shows squamous cell carcinoma that's P16 negative and a CPS score of 25. He has a good performance status and he takes atorvastatin and atenolol. So the management of recurrent and metastatic head and neck cancer, how do, we, how do we approach this problem? The first question we try to answer in patients with locally recurrent disease or regional recurrence is, are they still curable? Do they still have a surgical option? Do they have a re-irradiation option? So that's one of the first questions we ask and try to answer. And if the answer is no, the patient is not uh, resectable, does not have a re-irradiation uh, option, we move into systemic therapy, and here I list the options that are currently acceptable in 2022. Immunotherapy, chemotherapy, targeted therapy, or obviously always encouraging patients to participate in clinical trials. For some patients, further treatment is not appropriate or desired, and referral for supportive care and palliative care is appropriate, and we should always keep that in mind, that for some patients, that's the appropriate intervention. The extreme study, which I call now the old standard, was really a study that essentially established a standard of care that remained uh, uh, prevalent for over 20 years and only changed recently with Keynote 48 publication. So just a quick overview, this was a study where a Platinum 5FU platform was, was compared to Platinum 5FU cetuximab. This is a randomized phase three study there was a maintenance cetuximab in the cetuximab arm. And that study showed a benefit of three months with the addition of cetuximab to chemotherapy. So platinum 5-FU cetuximab gave you an overall survival of around 10 months versus an OS of around seven months with the chemotherapy only. And that led to the FDA approval of the extreme regimen, which we have continued to use up until 2019 with the presentation of Keynote 48. So I call now this the old standard of care for patients with recurrent metastatic disease. So let's talk about the new standards, which is really focused on immunotherapy. Checkpate 141 is the first randomized phase three study to really look at the use of checkpoint inhibitor nivolumab in this instance, and comparing that to investigator choice, either docetaxel or metotrexate or cetuximab. And the investigators would pick any of these three, primary endpoint overall survival, most, but not all, of the patients enrolled on this trial were treated in the second-line setting. So many of these patients, for example, would have had the extreme regimen first, and then the cancer come back, they would go on this trial. There were some patients on this trial who were treated in the first-line setting where they had this platinum refractory where their cancer came back within six months of chemoradiation. For the primary endpoint of overall survival, there was an improvement that was statistically significant of two months, 7.5 months for nivolumab, 5.1 months for 
investigator choice chemotherapy, again leading to the FDA approval of this agent in the second line treatment of head and neck cancer patients. Keynote 40 was a similar study, Pembro versus investigator choice, again a second line a patient population uh, in recurrent metastatic disease, and really showing fairly similar signal of better outcomes with pembrolizumab compared to chemotherapy. And in this study, also an effort was made to look at biomarkers. And here we saw we had the first hint that showed that when you have CPS-positive tumors, so CPS-1 or more, you did better with the use of immunotherapy than if you were CPS less than 1. And this, this topic we're going to revisit throughout the night and also maybe hopefully at the Q&A session later about the value of CPS and how we manage patients with recurrent metastatic disease. But really what I want to spend some time on is focusing about the standard of care today in 2022 and the first line recurrent metastatic disease with Keynote 48. So this was a large study looking at three treatment arms. The first one was pembrolizumab as a single agent. The second arm was Pembro plus chemo, a Platinum 5-FU platform, followed by Pembro maintenance. And the third arm was the old extreme regimen. So here we're comparing 1 to 3, 2 to 3. The study was not designed to compare 1 to 2, so that we cannot show we don't have that comparison. The authors did not do that analysis. It was not part of the study. And again, this is important to remember that this is a study where to enroll on this study, patients would need to have recurrent head and neck cancer that has recurred beyond six months from their definitive therapy. So they've had chemo radiation, and then six months or more after their cancer came back, they could enroll on this study. And it's a first-line study, so you could not have had chemotherapy for recurrent disease. It has to be first-line. The patient's characteristics are listed here, and what I, what I circled here is the notion that in head and neck cancer, and we talk a lot about CPS, most of patients we see have a CPS that's one or more. As you can see here, it was more than 80% on this trial. And if you look at the CPS 20 or more, it was around 40%. So most of the patients you see in your clinics, and that's reflected in my clinic, I rarely see a patient with a CPS zero in my practice. It's close to zero, it's not zero, but it's, it's not a common event. Most of the patients will have CPS positive disease. So we're going to start with a comparison of Pembro versus Extreme. So in this comparison, we're, com we're comparing essentially one drug to three drugs. And looking at the first comparison for the CPS 20 or more, we see a clear improvement in uh, overall survival with Pembro and compared to Extreme. For the CPS 1, you see the numbers there, also uh, better results with Pembrolizumab compared to the Extreme regimen. I'm going to come back to this notion when you look at that CPS1 and CPS20, because there was a first analysis that was done and published last month about these groups with low CPS score. For the other comparison of three drugs versus three drugs, so Pembro chemo versus cetuximab chemotherapy, here for the CPS20, again, better outcomes seen with the Pembrolizumab-containing arms, both for the CPS1, actually, and for the CPS20. Now, another analysis that was part of this study is the groups of the total population. If you look at the whole study, not if you don't look at it by CPS, pembrolizumab versus extreme, again, you see improved results with the pembro-containing arms 
and the same thing for the CPS uh, uh, for uh, Pembro versus uh, Pembro chemo versus extreme or Pembro versus extreme in the total population. Now, what I really want to uh, spend some time talking about is this group here that was, again, this manuscript was just published by Dr. Bertness, looking at the groups with the low CPS score. So CPS less than 1 and CPS 1 to 19. So I think what the message that we get from reading Keynote 48 is that if your CPS is 20 or more, you're very comfortable giving pembrolizumab single agent. The question becomes, in the low CPS scores, 1 to 19 or the CPS 0, what do you do there? So here they publish this paper that essentially focuses on those groups with a low CPS. And if you look at the first one with the CPS less than 1, it is clear that for those patients with a CPS less than 1, you should not be giving them Pembro as a single agent. You see the numbers there. The results are inferior to the extreme regimen. So as a single agent, pembrolizumab is not appropriate if you have someone with a CPS of zero. For the CPS 1 to 19, you see that the numbers there are very equivalent. So now as, an, as a physician, you have to make a decision. Do you give one drug or three drugs? I think most of us will choose the one drug because it's easier administration, less side effects, less toxicity. And at least now we know from this, uh, from this publication that the outcomes appear to be similar whether you gave pembro or whether you gave the extreme. Now, when you look at <clears throat> the uh, chemo pembro versus extreme, again, for those groups with the CPS less than 1 or with the CPS 1 to 19, if you look at the CPS less than 1, you have the numbers there. Uh, again, there's no statistically significant difference between these two, between these two groups. And, and for the CPS 1 to 19, you see that the pembro arm is on top. So again, for the CPS less than 1, you have a decision to make whether you give Pembro chemo or cetuximab chemotherapy because it does appear that those curves are superimposed. Some of you in the room might elect to give cetuximab or a chemotherapy-based regimen, and some of you might give a Pembro-containing regimen. You see here that the curves are pretty much superimposed. What you cannot do is give single-agent Pembro for someone with a CPS of zero because that data clearly show that the outcomes are inferior with just Pembro. And these are the conclusions of Keynote 48, which now establishes a new standard of care for patients with recurrent metastatic disease being treated in the first-line setting, which is for the CPS-positive tumors, you have the option of pembrolizumab single-agent. For patients with a CPS zero, you should really not be giving single-agent pembro, and you have the choice there of a chemo-pembro or a cetuximab-pembro. Obviously, uh, side effects, I think most of you in this room are familiar because you use these drugs extensively. This is a list of the side effects seen on this trial. With chemotherapy, obviously, you have more bone marrow suppression, more nausea, vomiting, and you, you see some of the uh, immune-related side effects that we experience with patients who get immunotherapy. I'm not going to spend too much time on this because I think everybody is familiar with the immune-related side effects with pembrolizumab. Immune-related events can be challenging for patients with head and neck cancer. The Head and Neck Cancer Alliance offers many resources that can be shared with patients to provide more information on the adverse events associated with various therapies available for HNC management. 
So the next slide, I'm, uh, the next study I want to discuss with you is a study we actually presented in ESMO a few months back, which is the other phase three study, Checkmate 651, which examined the comparison of NEVO plus EPI, compare that to the extreme regimen. So similar to Keynote 48, same patient population. These are patients treated in the first line recurrent metastatic setting. They were randomized to either NEVO plus EPI at the standard dose versus extreme. This is a one-to-one -one randomization, and this is one of the largest head and neck trials ever published or presented. It's not published yet. It's in review. Again, just like we saw with Keynote 48, there was a predominance of CPS-positive tumors, as I said before. Most of the patients you will see in your clinics will have CPS of one or more. And this, just like Keynote 48, we saw the same signals in Checkmate 651. Now, this study was read as a negative study, and I'm going to go through the results with you. If you look at the patients who were randomized, all patients randomized, you see the numbers here of NEVO-EPI, 13 plus months versus 13.5 months in the extreme, that difference was not statistically significant. So NEVO-EPI versus extreme, similar overall survival. If you look at the CPS 20 or more, and that was the primary endpoint of the trial, that number there, unfortunately, was not the way the statistical design of the trial was written. That p-value, albeit is less than 0.05, was not statistically significant. But you see the overall survival here of 17.8 months versus 14.8 months on the extreme regimen. That number actually uh, it compares very well with the data from Keynote 48. So the signals we are seeing with immunotherapy in that first line metastatic setting are very similar with these immunotherapy combinations. When we look at the CPS uh, 20 or more, and here you look at the duration of response, and it's massively in favor of immunotherapy. And those of you who use these agents, you know that these agents really, when they work, and they don't work for everybody, obviously, when they work, they work very well, and they give you a very long duration of response. You see here 32 months versus seven months in favor of the NEVO plus EPI. For progression-free survival, that tends, just like Keynote 48, tends to favor chemotherapy because chemotherapy gives you a bigger debulking effect and a bigger response rate. For the CPS one or more, you see here, again, the duration of response, which is really important, again favors NEVO plus EPI against the extreme regimen, as you can see here. For the overall survival, again, reassuring to see that NEVO, that NEVO plus EPI is performing very well as compared to the extreme. Again, similar data to the Keynote 48. Now, what we realized when this study, when we analyzed the data from this study, and I'm not showing you all the data this was, we presented this at ESMO, because when this study finished, immunotherapy had become available, there was a very high number of crossover seen on the extreme arm to immunotherapy, and it was around 40%. So a lot of patients on the extreme regimen ended up getting immunotherapy because the drugs have become available, and we feel that that actually has impacted the overall survival results of the trial. 
And these are the conclusions of the Checkmate 651. Again, this is a comparison of Nevo-Epi against Extreme. And for the purpose of how the study was designed and implemented, this is a negative trial that does not show improvement in overall survival for the PDL1 20 or more or PDL1 CPS1 or more. So take home messages on the established immunotherapy options in recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer. The current standard of care for the first line treatment of patients with recurrent metastatic head and neck cancer is pembrolizumab. The response rates are higher with pembro chemo. So when you give pembro alone, you have a response rate of around 18 to 20%. When you give pembro plus chemo, you increase that response rate to almost 35%. So when you have situations where you are actually looking for a response, patient is symptomatic, you're looking for a rapid response, you might consider for that patient chemotherapy plus pembro because you will get a higher response rate. If you have someone who's asymptomatic where you're not really interested in response, you would start with single-agent pembrolizumab. For CPS0, neither pembro nor pembro chemo improves survival compared to extreme regimen. Nevo plus IPI combination has a very solid median overall survival of 17.6 months versus 14.6 months for the extreme regimen. That's for the CPS20. And for the CPS1, it has a 15.7. And those numbers compare very favorably to the Keynote 48 uh, pembrolizumab data. Combination studies of IO, TKI, chemotherapy are ongoing. I'm going to hear about those combinations next uh, from Rani. And I'm going to stop here. I'm going to hand it over to uh, Rani uh, for her uh, guidance for the next stage of novel immunotherapy options for head and neck cancer. Thank you. Thank you for providing that introduction. So now I'd like to talk about novel combinations and development uh, with immunotherapy for head and neck cancer in the recurrent metastatic setting. So first, I'm going to um, just present two cases just to keep in mind as we go through the slides. The first is a 54-year-old woman with a history of two to three cigarettes a day for 25 years who was diagnosed with a T2N1 P16 negative squamous cell carcinoma of the right tonsil. She underwent resection and neck dissection. Her postoperative pathology was significant for having negative margins and no extranodal extension, but there was evidence of PNI and LVI. She completed adjuvant radiation alone since there was no indication for adjuvant chemoradiation. But four months later, she recurred local regionally um, with the PET scan that you see here. She was having pain at presentation. A biopsy was done and the PDL1 was zero. Subsequently, she was treated with carboplatin, 5-fluorouracil, and pembrolizumab with an initial response. After six months, while on maintenance pembrolizumab, she progressed but did not have evidence of distant metastatic disease at that time. First question is, what is the next step? Refer to palliative care, next-generation sequencing, or repeat PDL1. And the second question is, which treatment would you consider? docetaxel, cetuximab, re-irradiation, or a clinical trial. The next case that I want to um, highlight is uh, Alex, who's a 44-year-old man with a history of T3N1 EBV-positive nasopharyngeal cancer, who recently completed cisplatin and radiation therapy. No adjuvant therapy was given at the time due to toxicity concerns. 
Plasma EBV DNA one month post therapy was negative. After a year, he developed new back pain, and on PET CT, multiple bone metastases and new small pulmonodules were noted. A biopsy of one of these nodules confirmed recurrent disease, and the PDL1 was 10. What are the options to consider? Chemotherapy or single agent PD1 inhibitor, um, or platinum gemcitabine plus a PD1 inhibitor. So let me first re- reiterate what Dr. Haddad had said about some uh, factors to keep in mind in our patients who have recurrent metastatic disease. Um, in both of these cases, one had a local regional recurrence, the other had local regional and distant metastatic disease, and this is important to be aware of since the patient's symptoms are really going to be dependent on their sites of disease. Um, In addition, when you're planning subsequent lines of therapy, some things to keep in mind include that the prior first-line treatment includes cytotoxic therapy, um, or is the patient fit for clinical trials, especially uh, given the limited standard options with subsequent lines of therapy. In addition, we need to keep in mind the need to palliate their symptoms even while they're on treatment. This may include palliative radiation to symptomatic bone mets, pain support, advanced care planning, uh, and nutritional and airway management as well. So before I discuss the novel combinations, um, I want to remind that the foundation of what some of these combinations are, is built on still rests on what we know about the biology of squamous cell head and neck cancer. And that is that we know that the epidermal growth factor receptor is highly expressed in about 90% of squamous cell head and neck cancers. And one of the first um, targeted agents to be approved for this disease was cetuximab, which is a chimeric monoclonal antibody that was constructed on an immunoglobin IgG1 framework. Uh, This is a schematic of it. It targets an extracellular epitope in the EGFR ligand-binding domain. But in spite of all of the excitement with cetuximab, the single-agent activity was limited with a response rate of 11%. Dr. Haddad already showed the favorable combination data with the extreme regimen. And so this is an agent that still is in use and has been used for some time. The mechanisms uh, include, briefly, blocking of binding of natural ligands to EGFR, which disrupts the signaling pathway, depletion of targeted receptors from the cell surface via induction of receptor endocytosis. And what's important now, especially as we think about immunotherapy combinations, is mediation of antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity via recruitment of natural killer cells and macrophages. So the first agent that I want to discuss builds on the cetuximab backbone with an antibody drug conjugate of uh, cetuximab serotelocan, which is a first-in-class agent utilizing an EGFR-directed monoclonal antibody conjugated with a light-activating dye. This schema illustrates the construct. And um, the agent, which was formerly known as RM1929, is now known as ASP1929, basically targets the uh, squamous cell head and neck cancer cells, um, which express cetuximab, or express the EGFR. And then through an apparatus with a probe or um, a a laser uh, or, I guess, light-emitting device, the tumor is illuminated with a non-thermal red light, which basically activates the... um, (coughs) 
the light activating dye and then results in increased cell membrane permeability, which is then disrupted, leading to necrotic cell death and an anti-tumor effect. So a phase two trial of this agent was done for patients with recurrent head and neck cancer. 30 patients were treated. These patients were not able to receive other local treatment options, such as surgery or radiation therapy. And they were enrolled and treated with the cetuximab sertalocan, followed by a non-thermal red light administration 24 hours later. The toxicity, which was noted, included tumor bleeding, swelling, and treatment site pain. The overall response rate in this pretreated patient population was 28%, and the complete response rate was 14%, with 4 out of 28 available patients having a complete response. The median progression-free survival was 5.7 months, and median overall survival was 9.1 months. So again, this is a heavily pretreated population, and so this data was felt to be encouraging, and it set the groundwork for the ongoing Phase three trial, um, which is listed here, which is basically comparing this approach to physician's choice standard of care for the treatment of local regional recurrent head and neck cancer. And on this trial, patients could have progressed on two prior lines of therapy, although one must have been a systemic therapy. So what is the rationale for other targeted therapy and an immune checkpoint inhibitor combinations? Well, there are other pathways of interest <coughs> in head and neck cancer which have been studied through the years. One includes the MET pathway, and MET activation drives the proliferation, migration, invasion, and angiogenesis in tumors. It is associated with poor outcomes in head and neck cancer and has long been studied as a p potential mechanism of resistance to cetuximab. The hepatocyte growth factor is the ligand for MET and is secreted by tumor-associated fib fibroblasts in a paracrine manner and has been shown to be overexpressed in over 50% of the head and neck cancer stroma. There's now emerging data that this is an immunosuppressive um, uh, factor through multiple mechanisms, include, including increased lactate production with increased glycolysis, uh, inhibition of dendritic cell and antigen-presenting cells, and increases in um, regulatory T cells. Another pathway which has been studied with interest in head and neck ca cancer includes the VEGF, or vascular endothelial growth factor pathway. And while we have been, long been studying the potential anti-angiogenic impacts of these treatment on solid tumors and on malignancy, again, there's emerging data that this also has an anti-cancer immunity effect at multiple points in the immune response including the ones listed here, which is to increase PD-L1 expression, activating Tregs, and also impacting the maturation of antigen-presenting dendritic cells. So an area that's been of interest has been combining multi-kinase inhibitors of VEGF, um, such as lindatinib, which also targets FGFR1 to 4, RAT kit, with pembrolizumab, and Dr. Taylor and colleagues had done a phase one study with a cohort specifically in head and neck cancer. And as, as you can see from the spider plot, there were uh, numerous patients who had significant and deep responses to the combination therapy. And the progression-free survival was about eight months, um, which again is favorable in a second-line pretreated population. 
No hyperprogression was noted, which is sometimes a phenomena that we do see with PD-1 inhibitor uh, monotherapy. And based on this data, the combination is being assessed further in the LEAP program. There are two ongoing trials currently for head and neck cancer. LEAP-09 is a trial for second line or beyond. And in this trial, patients are either randomized to lindatinib and pembrolizumab or standard of care dealer's choice chemotherapy. There was a lindatinib monotherapy arm, which is no longer accruing. LEAP-10 is looking at the combination in the first-line setting, and the randomization uh, for this trial is, again, the lindatinib-pembrolizumab combination or pembrolizumab monotherapy. And since this a first-line trial, based on the data that Dr. Haddad presented, the pdl one expression has to be at least CPS1, if not greater. So uh, Dr. Haddad mentioned the presentation by Dr. Saba, which was um, presented yesterday at the oral session for head and neck cancers. And this is also building on the same uh, mechanisms of VEGF as well as MET targeting, but by using another multikinase inhibitor, which is cabozantinib. The rationale is that targeting these pathways again, will um, stimulate antigen production and result in a more favorable immune response. Uh, I encourage you to go and look at the full presentation, but this slide illustrates the activity of this combination. 33 patients with refractory recurrent metastatic disease were treated. The response rate was about 50, was 54%, with 18 patients having a response. Uh, none of the patients had a complete response. And overall, the clinical benefit was felt to be about 91%, as you can see in the waterfall plot here. It did appear that both HPV-positive and HPV-negative patients had a response. Dr. Bauman had also looked at uh, targeting um, with similar uh, access in the pathway by targeting with ficlituzumab, which is an anti-HGF IgG1 monoclonal antibody. And this has been combined safely with cetuximab in phase one studies. A phase two randomized trial for refractory head and neck cancer patients had been conducted. These were patients who had progressed on prior platinum as well as uh, prior um, uh, cetuximab. And they were randomized to the combination of uh, ficlituzumab or ficlituzumab plus cetuximab. Uh, the adverse events that were noted included pneumonitis, edema, diarrhea, LFT elevation, rash, or electrolyte abnormalities. So of the patients who were treated, one interesting finding was that there really wasn't any responses amongst the patients with HPV-associated disease. And the PFS in this group was um, 2.3 months only. However, the activity was really appreciated in the population of patients with HPV-negative disease, with a response rate of 6%, but a couple complete responses were noted in, um, in the combination group uh, with both agents, and the overall response rate in that group was 38%. And the PFS also in that group was 3.8 months. So again, a signal of potential activity with, with the combination, but mainly for the HPV-negative disease. 
So what are some of the take-homes from these early signals of emerging data? So one is that photoimmunotherapy provides a novel approach for localized disease that is not amenable to radiation or surgery. This may have an impact on our ability to palliate our patients, because we all know that uncontrolled local regional disease can be particularly morbid. Um, also, preliminary data suggests that there are complex interactions across signaling, angiogenesis, and immune systems. And so different strategies to use combination therapies to target either angiogenesis, HGF meth pathways, and with immunotherapy uh, may not only have uh, signaling benefits um, that cause an anti-tumor effect, but also could result in a more favorable immune microenvironment. But obviously, these experiences are small, and trials are still ongoing. So one trial that I want to review in the first-line setting for recurrent metastatic disease also involves a combination of immune and targeted therapy. Uh, so this is a program involving monolizumab, which is a first-in-class humanized IgG4 agent which targets the NKG2A receptor. And so this is expressed on NK cells and CDA-positive T lymphocytes. Uh, it's an inhibitory receptor binding HLAE. And so the, by expressing HLAE, cancer cells are able to protect themselves from um, the NK cell response. And this is a marker which is frequently upregulated on cancer cells. And so by binding of the NKG2A, it allows for activation of NK cells and a cytotoxic T cell response. There has been data presented and trials are ongoing looking at the combination of monolisumab with cetuximab. Um, but this trial looked at a triple combination of uh, monolisumab, dribalumab, and cetuximab in the first-line setting for recurrent metastatic disease. And so this was essentially a non-cytotoxic therapy regimen. Um, so this data was presented recently at ASCA by Dr. Kalibas. Uh, as you can see here, the patients did not have prior treatment in the recurrent metastatic setting, and they were enrolled regardless of PDL1 or HPV status. Uh, the primary endpoint was overall response rate. So the patient's uh, age ranged from 48 to 91. 40 patients were enrolled, and the ECOG performance status, as you can see, was favorable at either zero or one. And this included a mixture of patients who were never smokers as well as former smokers. And the tumor site also was a mixture of oral cavity, HPV-related oropharynx, non-HPV-related oropharynx, as well as laryngeal cancers. Um, PD-L1 status was known uh, for a number of patients, and majority had CPS of greater than or equal to 1, although it was still unknown in about 25% of patients. So the overall response rate was 32.5%. Um, the confirmed plus unconfirmed response rate that was reported was 50%. And uh, this is the breakdown here of, uh, of PR and SDs. Uh, the median progression-free survival was 6.9 months. And median overall survival, although this was a small number of patients, was highly encouraging at 15 months. The 12-month overall survival was also 58.6%. Uh, and you can see the waterfall plot here, the uh, degree of response in some of the patients, including, you know, a few who had either um, deep partial responses or complete responses. So there was an exploratory uh, subgroup analysis based on CPS. And there was, um, 
maybe suggestion for uh, the, the response on the CPS greater than or equal to one was 40%, but again, not, not really that much different from the overall population of 32.5, and there was still activity in the CPS less than one, which was also interesting. But as I mentioned, it was unknown in about 10 patients. So the adverse events are as you would expect with this combination, with many patients having a dermatitis acneform rash that's uh, attributable to the cetuximab, as well as perinicchiae. Uh, the other common adverse events were fatigue or pruritus. Um, but overall, I think in general, it was still uh, felt to be reasonably tolerated and, and certainly better tolerated than a cytotoxic therapy combination would have been. So now I want to pivot and discuss c c emerging trial options in uh, nasopharyngeal cancer. So this is the NCCN current guidelines, which uh, lists induction sequential systemic therapy, which still really relies mainly on cytotoxic therapy, as well as systemic therapy and radiation followed by adjuvant therapy, which again is really focused more on cytotoxic regimens. However, in the recurrent metastatic setting, we are having some recommendations starting to incorporate immune checkpoint inhibitors, including a recent recommendation of cisplatin and gemcitabine plus a PD-1 inhibitor in the first-line setting. Uh, interestingly, the ones that they included are pembrolizumab or, or nivolumab, mainly because these are the agents which are FDA-approved currently in the U.S., and in the subsequent line, um, we do have data supporting either nivolumab or pembrolizumab as monotherapy approaches. But is there a role for novel PDN1 inhibitors in NPC? And so I want to present now evidence with toripalumab and ticilizumab. So first, there's the JUPITER-2 study. This was a phase three trial testing toripalumab or placebo plus chemotherapy as a first-line treatment for recurrent metastatic NPC. The eligibility are listed here. Um, these were all patients who either had metastatic disease or recurred after curative intent therapy. Uh, the ECOG performance status was zero or one. And then there were stratification factors of recurrent versus primary metastatic disease or ECOG performance status as well. So patients were randomized in a one-to-one -one ratio to the combination followed by toripalumab maintenance or cisplatin and gemcitabine uh, followed by placebo maintenance. And the primary endpoint was progression-free survival. So as you can see, the combination resulted in an improvement in median PFS of 11.7 months with a one-year PFS rate of 49% compared to eight months and a one-year PFS rate of 27.9%. So the p-value here was statistically significant with p0003. And then this Kaplan-Meier curve illustrates that activity. What was interesting is there seemed to be a benefit regardless of PDL1 expression. And those that had uh, either less than or uh, one or greater than one both had um, hazard ratios that favored the addition of toripalumab. The median overall survival data was not yet mature, but there was a trend for improved survival in the combination arm. And to date, there's a 40% reduction in risk of death noted in the arm with toripalumab. <clears throat> as far as the safety signals, again, it seems really similar to what we now know are common toxicities with immune checkpoint inhibitors. Uh, and as far as AEs leading to discontinuation, um, it was not really significantly different between the two arms. 
So the next trial I want to present is Rationale 309, and this was another phase three of tisilizumab or placebo plus chemotherapy as a frontline setting as well for recurrent uh, nasopharynx cancer. And so this uh, immune checkpoint inhibitor was also combined with gemcitabine or cisplatin uh, and compared to placebo plus gemcitabine or cisplatin. Again, the eligibility criteria was uh, similar to the um, Jupiter trial. Uh, again, performance status had to be less than or equal to one. Uh, there was stratification included gender, as well as the presence of liver metastases. And again, the patients were randomized on a one-to-one -one ratio. Um, as we saw before, maintenance uh, uh, checkpoint inhibitor monotherapy was continued um, post uh, the cytotoxic regimen combination. So there was a substantial PFS improvement with the addition of tisilizumab to chemotherapy. And as you can see here, illustrated by these Kaplan-Meier curves. And this was also noted regardless of pdl one expression. There was also a numerical benefit of overall survival in the combination arm versus the arm with placebo. And then at six months, the survival of the combination arm was 95.3% um, in both groups. However, at nine months, uh, it was also 89% in the tisilizumab plus chemotherapy group versus 86% in the placebo group. What was interesting is that there was crossover allowed to tisilizumab um, in the patients who received placebo plus chemotherapy, and so this likely impacted some of those results. The final overall, overall survival data, though, were still immature. <laughs> so the safety profile, again, was as we would expect with a combination of cytotoxic therapy and um, a checkpoint inhibitor, so myelosuppression uh, was one of the main toxicities seen with this regimen. And then there were immune-mediated um, toxicities seen in the combination group, um, but not anything that was unexpected. So take-home points from the PD-1 experience in nasopharyngeal cancer. Immune checkpoint inhibitors targeting PD-1 have activity in advanced EBV-associated NPC with an improvement in survival. In the first-line setting for recurrent metastatic disease, there is a benefit regardless of pdl one expression status, and treatment was well-tolerated. Further trials can study the role of immune checkpoint inhibitors, among other subtypes of NPC, especially those more prevalent in North America, where we often have patients who have non-viral-associated NPC or those who have HPV-associated NPC. And future research is also ongoing that's focused on the locally advanced setting. As noted during this presentation, clinical trial-based therapy remains a cornerstone of good medical care that can also drive therapeutic innovation. When discussing the clinical trial option with patients, including those with NPC, the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance offers an array of useful tools, including a clinical trial finder that can be provided to patients as a clinical resource for finding appropriate trials for their consideration. So I think now I yield to Dr. Atkins. Thank you, Ronnie and Robert. Thank you. Um, so, yeah. So in this part of today's presentation, I will provide a brief review of the rationale and ongoing studies for adding immunotherapy to CRT or RT or to surgery in the definitive setting for adding immunotherapies to surgery in the local regional recurrent setting, 
and for adding radiation to immunotherapy in the metastatic or oligometastatic setting. Let's start with three case presentations, all of which reflect 40-year-old healthy never-smoker patients with locally advanced HPV uh, associated HPV positive oropharynx squamous cell carcinoma. Case one, let's see here, shown here on the left, is um, a patient who has low risk disease, staged as T1N1, M0. Case two, shown in the center, is as a patient with intermediate risk disease, staged as T1N2, meaning bilateral neck disease. Uh, and then case three, shown on the right, is a patient who has high-risk disease, staged as uh, T4, so a large primary tumor, uh, N3, uh, a tumor in the neck node measuring over seven centimeters, as shown in here, in this case, seven centimeters. For case one, would you offer a clinical trial incorporating immunotherapy into standard of care treatment? as a potential de-escalation strategy, or would you only offer standard of care treatment? For case two, would you offer a clinical trial incorporating immunotherapy into standard of care treatment as a potential de-escalation or perhaps even an escalation strategy, or would you offer only standard of care treatment? For case three, would you offer a clinical trial incorporating immunotherapy into standard of care treatment as a potential escalation strategy, or would you only offer standard of care treatment? Appreciating that patients with, in case one, would have a risk of recurrence of 10% perhaps, case two, maybe 30% or 25 to 30%, case three, maybe 40% risk of recurrence. The three pillars of Curative treatment for head and neck cancer includes surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, shown here. Immunotherapy may be integrated either before or after surgery, or before, during, or and or after chemoradiation or radiation. So one key question in the field is when do we integrate immunotherapy in this triad paradigm? Radiation-induced death of tumor cells results in release of tumor neoantigens into the microenvironment where they engage dendritic cells that migrate to regional nodes and present tumor antigen to naive T lymphocytes that result in T cell activation and proliferation and tumor cell death. In this mouse model of head and neck cancer, radiation and anti-PD-1 was more effective, as shown by this arrow, uh, compared to either treatment alone in preventing tumor growth. And interestingly, uh, radiation uh, upregulated the expression of PDL1, suggesting that uh, that might be one mechanism of benefit. So, when to incorporate immunotherapy into the standard treatment of head and neck cancer remains unclear today. This paper from JCI Insight described the maximal benefit of PD1. Checkpoint therapy was dependent on the presence of, of untreated, not treated, untreated tumor draining nodes, suggesting that administration of checkpoint therapy before surgery or radiation may be the optimal sequence. But we still just don't know. Currently, both PD1 and PDL1 inhibitors are being tested in patients with locally advanced 
head and neck cancer in an attempt to improve cure rates. Some trials have also incorporated CTLA-4 blocking antibodies as well. This paper in JCO describes the work of Powell and colleagues who first uh, described that pembrolizumab given in combination with CIS-RT was, uh, was safe and did not adversely uh, affect the treatment delivery of CIS-RT. Similarly, Gillison and colleagues described the feasibility of administration of nivolumab during and for three months after either RT or CIS-RT. But interestingly, at least as the way they described feasibility in this trial, they did not find it was feasible to administer the nivolumab in the adjuvant phase between four and 12 months after RT or CIS-RT. Let's first focus on trials assessing the incorporation of immunotherapy with CIS-RT or RT in cisplatin fit patients. That's probably the majority of patients we see. Um, I, in my population, cisplatin fit patients are probably 80% or, or so, maybe even higher. I'm not sure how that varies across other groups. So the Javelin HN100 trial randomized patients with locally advanced head and neck cancer to receive either Avelumab plus CIS-RT or to placebo plus CIS-RT. In the, in, the group, uh, in both groups, the study drug, be it Avelumab or placebo, was given for up to 12 months after CIS-RT. The primary endpoint was event-free survival. Patients had either HPV-positive or HPV-negative cancers, but importantly, pdl one status was not used to select patients to enroll onto the trial. Unexpectedly, the PFS of patients treated with Avelumab plus CIS-RT was not better than those treated with placebo plus CIS-RT. Indeed, the PFS trended to be worse, implicating a possible antagonistic effect of Avelumab when given with uh, CIS-RT. You can see the two curves here. The blue is cis I'm sorry, the red is CIS-RT, and then um, the blue is the Avelumab plus CIS-RT. They did note in the small cohort of patients treated with, uh, who had high PD-O1 uh, expressing tumors, there tended to be a benefit in the Avelumab group. In the Gore-Tec 2017-01 REACH trial, cisplatin fit patients, as shown in the upper panel here in red, were randomized to Avelumab plus Cetuximab and radiation versus cisplatin and radiation. The interim futility analysis showed a one-year PFS of 64% in the Avelumab-containing arm and 73% higher in the cisplatin uh, RT arm. Thus, the avilumab-containing arm did not perform better than the CIS-RT arm in this trial and may have actually performed worse. We will return to the results of the cisplatin unfit patients shown here at the bottom in a few minutes. So the Keynote 412 trial is a placebo-controlled double-blind randomized phase three trial comparing concurrent and adjuvant pembrolizumab given with uh, CRT versus placebo given with CRT. Patients had either HPV positive or negative disease. We know that recruitment has been completed. The trial is maturing. Results are not available, but maybe very soon we'll know the answer. The keychain trial is an open label ongoing randomized phase two trial 
comparing concurrent and adjuvant pembrolizumab with radiation, no cisplatin, um, versus cisplatin and radiation. And this is specific to patients who have intermediate risk or high-risk HPV-positive or pharynx cancers uh, or HPV cancers of other uh, sites in the uh, head and neck region. The ECOG-3191 um, trial is also an ongoing trial testing whether giving CIS-RT followed by adjuvant nivolumab, uh, shown here in the upper panel, um, how that compares to CIS-RT alone with observation. In both arms of the trial, when patients develop recurrence, they are offered uh, nivolumab uh, as a therapeutic for recurrent disease. This trial is uh, still pending. The UPCI 15132 trial uh, was, is a sequential trial uh, comparing concurrent pembrolizumab with uh, CIS-RT versus sequential. Uh, again, getting to the heart of sequential versus concurrent, what's the right sequence? The top panel shows that patients are getting CIS-RT followed by uh, pembrolizumab, and the bottom panel, uh, those patients are getting concurrent pembrolizumab and CIS-RT. And actually, when I put this together just two days ago, there was no data. But then yesterday at the oral uh, head and neck cancer presentation, uh, there was preliminary data shared with us by David Klum uh, that suggested um, that perhaps the patients that received the sequential approach may have fared better than those that received the concurrent approach. So that's very interesting uh, data. I look forward to seeing the final data set presented. Next, let's focus uh, on assessing the incorporation of immunotherapy with cisplatin and, uh, with uh, RT and cisplatin unfit patients. So why is et al. presented their, their results of a single-arm phase two trial with cisplatin in which cisplatin unfit patients were treated with pembrolizumab given uh, before, I'm sorry, given during and after radiation? And as you can see from these figures, uh, these patients fared pretty well non-controlled trial. The NRG HN004 trial is randomizing cisplatin unfit patients uh, to either durvalumab plus radiation versus atuximab plus radiation. This trial, I think, enrolled about 160 or so patients, but the accrual uh, has been uh, temporarily interrupted for some concerns about uh, perhaps utility or adverse events. Uh, I think that's still being assessed. Um, the PEMBRAD trial uh, is a randomized trial comparing pembrolizumab plus radiation versus cetuximab plus radiation in cisplatin unfit patients. Again, surprisingly, no differences in local regional control, PFS, or OS were observed. And returning back to the Gore-Tec REACH trial, uh, cisplatin unfit patients were randomized to velumab plus cetuxRT versus Cetux-RT alone. This data was presented at ESMO this last year, and that did not show a significant benefit of favoring the um, Avelumab-containing arm, although there were some trends uh, for improvement, but not statistically significant. This phase three trial is comparing adjuvant atezolizumab versus placebo given after did definitive therapy for locally advanced head and neck cancer. And in this case, definitive therapy includes either surgery or radiation. 
and uh, all of the trial enrollment has completed. We don't yet have those results. So take-home points include number one, it is safe and feasible to administer immunotherapy during and after CRT or RT. Current data, number two, current data does not support incorporation of immunotherapy into CRT or RT as standard treatment for locally advanced cancer. And number three, multiple trials are ongoing, so stay tuned. Demonstration of a benefit from immunotherapy may critically depend on biomarker-based uh, selection of patients. Next, we will focus on trials incorporating immunotherapy with surgery for locally advanced uh, disease. As shown here, several groups performed the initial trials that confirmed the feasibility and potential efficacy of incorporating immunotherapy with surgery for locally advanced head and neck cancer. Uh, there are many others. I apologize for not getting everybody on this, trial, on this slide, but uh, these are four that I selected for this presentation. These studies pave the way, to, uh, they pave the road to phase three trials uh, to be presented next. So Keynote uh, 68, Keynote 60, 689 is an ongoing phase three trial comparing pembrolizumab plus standard of care to standard of care alone. So this is an open label trial. Half the patients are randomized to standard of care treatment with pembrolizumab and the other half are standard care treatment alone. Standard care treatment includes surgery as the initial definitive therapy, followed by appropriate adjuvant radiation or chemoradiation based on path features. And again, the arm that uh, is, is assigned to receive pembrolizumab will receive two doses before surgery and then up to 15 doses after surgery, so about a total of a year. And that occurs in both high-risk and, and lower-risk patients uh, on the pembrolizumab arm. So that trial has enrolled over 500 patients. There's about, uh, it's about 75% complete. And uh, accrual was definitely uh, adversely affected by COVID, as most all these trials were. But it's now picked up and looking more promising. This is the only trial that I think I'm aware of in the surgical setting, a phase three trial where we have this uh, data, this kind of uh, quality data available. So this is an important trial for the field. So the uh, ongoing HN003 RTOG12 16 trial is comparing adjuvant atezolizumab plus RT, CIS-RT, and adosotaxol and cetux-RT versus CIS-RT in patients with high-risk features after surgery. So uh, this trial is, this primary endpoint is overall survival. And this trial is also ongoing. So until the phase three trials are reported, many questions remain unanswered. These questions include, should the extent of surgery or the intensity of post-op therapy be altered based on the response of the cancer to neoadjuvant uh, immunotherapy? And does pathologic response to neoadjuvant immunotherapy correlate with event-free survival? Next, we'll uh, focus on the addition of radiation to immunotherapy in patients with metastatic head and neck cancer. As shown here, several trials have or are testing uh, radiation fractionation schemes in this, uh, with this strategy or the abscopal effect. And I'll focus on just one of these trials. This is a trial from Sloan Kettering, a phase two randomized trial. It was published in JCO a few years ago. And in this trial, 
patients, uh, the comparison was between SBRT to one lesion with systemic nivolumab versus nivolumab alone in patients with metastatic head and neck cancer. The te to test the upscopal effect, the primary endpoint was ORR, objective response rate, in the unirradiated lesions. As shown on the panel on the left, the objective response rate between the two arms was actually not significantly different, and as shown on the right, neither was the PFS. So this trial did not demonstrate an abscopal effect with SBRT in this setting. Uh, I would note that the, the majority of patients on this trial, 58%, had pd one negative disease, and as you heard earlier from our speakers, that may be the population that doesn't achieve any benefit from uh, immunotherapy. So this could be uh, an effect, uh, an important effect on the trial results. And I would say it's still not a, a resolved issue, uh, but this, is, this trial has definitely um, kind of had a chilling effect on the pursuing an upscopal effect in head and neck cancer. Next, we'll focus on trials incorporating immunotherapy with RT or surgery for locally rich, uh, regional recurrent or second primary head and neck cancers. Not an infrequent problem we deal with in, in this setting. Uh, so um, the ECOG 3191 trial is an ongoing randomized phase two trial comparing adjuvant re-irradiation plus pembrolizumab and pembrolizumab monotherapy um, versus re-irradiation with cisplatin. So again, the three arms would be pembrolizumab, shown at the bottom here in the orange, and then the, uh, the other arm is radiation in platinum, cisplatin, and then re-irradiation re with pembro. So this is a very interesting question. I hope that we can get an answer to this for patients with local regional recurrent disease that's resected and high risk, has high-risk features, that is a positive margin or extra capture extension. The Keystroke uh, RTOG3507 trial is an ongoing trial comparing SBRT with pembrolizumab um, versus uh, pembrolizumab in patients with local regional recurrent or second primary head and neck cancers not amenable to resection uh, and have been treated with prior radiation. So again, here's the two comparisons and um, hopefully we'll figure out if the addition of SBRT to uh, pembrolizumab will improve the outcomes for these patients. Primary endpoint is PFS. This ongoing uh, randomized phase two trial uh, conducted at UCSD is comparing neoadjuvant pembrolizumab versus placebo in patients with surgically resectable local regional recurrence of their cancer. So again, once they're diagnosed with local regional recurrence, it's resectable, but they've already had prior radiation they uh, undergo a pretreatment biopsy, and half the patients receive Pembro, or I'm sorry, three out of four receive Pembro, and then the other quarter receive placebo. And then subsequently, uh, patients are treated with adjuvant uh, therapy after their surgery. So today we have reviewed ongoing and completed trials that incorporate immunotherapy with CRT, RT, or surgery in locally advanced head and neck cancer in an attempt to improve the cure rates, and also in local regional recurrent second primary or metastatic disease. In summary, none of the completed randomized trials have demonstrated a benefit of incorporating immunotherapy in these disease settings. 
However, many pivotal randomized trials are ongoing that may change that conclusion. This table reviews some of the unanswered questions in the field, among them biomarker selection and sequencing of immunotherapy with standard care treatment are, I believe, the most likely to be consequential to the results of these trials. Thank you, Doug and Ronnie, for great presentations, and thank you for sticking around. I'm going to open the session for questions. Uh, we have a few questions submitted which we can get to, but if there's any uh, questions from the floor, please raise your hand, and we're happy to uh, take them. Uh, there's one question that just came uh, up. Uh, is there any role for immunotherapy maintenance approach after a robust initial response in recurrent metastatic uh, head and neck cancer? Uh, Norani, do you want to take that? So is there any role for immunotherapy maintenance approach after initial response in recurrent metastatic? So for recurrent metastatic disease using the Kina 048 approach, um, if patients are getting platinum doublet with pembrolizumab, Kina 048 continued maintenance therapy after the completion of cytotoxic therapy. And on Kina 048, patients could receive up to six cycles of the platinum doublet therapy. I think sometimes if somebody does have a robust response and if they're having increasing toxicity, we may stop or dose reduce the cytotoxic therapy earlier. But then the practice based on that study is to continue the pembrolizumab as a maintenance for up to 35 cycles or two years if they're continuing to have benefit. Uh, thank you, Ronnie. There's another question that came up. Uh, uh, what do you do with a patient who has a CPS score in the gray area, 5 or 10, for example? Um, and this, again, was addressed with the recent publication from Barbara Burtness in JCO last month. Those groups on the CPS 1 to 19 did benefit from single-agent pembrolizumab. So you have the option of giving these patients single-agent pembro when their CPS in that 5 to 10 range. I think one of the questions I'm often asked is that if, again, and I said that in my presentation, if you're looking to augment your response rate in somebody who is symptomatic, then you could consider adding chemotherapy to pembro. But it's very reasonable based on the data we have today that somebody with a CPS of 8 or 9, for example, you can safely treat that patient with single-agent pembrolizumab. Uh, if, uh, let's see. We have, we have some questions here that are not related to our presentation, but we're happy to address them. One of the questions that came up from the audience is, what is the best induction regimen for stage 4B larynx, hypopharynx, large nodes before concurrent chemoradiotherapy? So obviously, we did not discuss tonight the uh, curative setting, uh, at least in the immunotherapy uh, portion, and we tried to focus on the incorporation of immunotherapy. Uh, but in my practice, when I give induction chemotherapy, I always use TPF, Taxotere, Cisplatinum, 5-FU. That's the FDA-approved regimen in the U.S. for neoadjuvant chemotherapy for head and neck. Obviously, that regimen was designed for patients with good performance status. So the performance status has to be zero or one. It's not designed for patients with performance status of two or three, because then you really get in trouble with, with side effects. What are your thoughts on novel immunotherapy combinations such as Tira, Golumab, Atizo? 
uh, Tira plus Atizo, and how do results with this combination and other indications, for example, like lung cancer, guide your thinking for use in head and neck cancer? So this is, Rani, uh, your presentation. Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think oftentimes we do look and see what's uh, what the data is emerging in the in the lung cancer arena and seeing what we can incorporate then in head and neck. I mean, they're not the same disease, though, so the trials have to be done in head and neck cancer because in, in contrast to lung cancer, uh, in head and neck cancer, there's also the question of HPV-associated versus not HPV-associated. Um, the mechanisms related to EGFR signaling are very different between the two types of diseases. And even, so one thing we didn't really discuss, the, the PDL1 um, biomarker that we use is different between head and neck cancer and lung cancer. In lung cancer, it's the tumor proportion score, which is basically measure, measuring PDL1 expression in the tumor, whereas in head and neck cancer, the CPS is a combined proportion score with the um, immune cell expression as well as tumor expression. So we can't completely extrapolate all the data from lung to head and neck, but I think it does help guide future questions for us. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, if there are no other questions from... Uh, yes, go ahead. <clears throat> Excuse me. Since both of the PD-1 drugs for the nasopharyngeal cancers are not approved in this country, would you go ahead and add in Nevo or Pembro? The NCC guidelines seem to leave you leeway to do that, or to get it approved by insurance companies. Um, I, I think you know the data that uh, you know was presented certainly is compelling on the role of the addition of the PD-1 inhibitor. Um, those two agents just aren't commercially available right now in the in the U.S. So I, I think you know in the interest of trying to do what's the best care for the patient, I think it's it's worth at least incorporating the ones that we do have available. Um, the the regulatory agencies, you know, the FDA is reviewing the data, so I guess we'll see in the future what happens as far as what other options we have. So that, that was an interesting uh, NCCN update mm -hmm. to really include, mm -hmm. uh, essentially, as you mentioned, that it gives you the option to give a triplet, even though those triplets, that, that regimen has not been tested in nasopharyngeal, but... The, and I sit on the NCCN panel, and I think, Doug, you're on the panel, too. Mm -hmm. uh, and part of what I think the thinking is that, you know, the data that Rani showed was so robust that the NCCN panel felt that patients should at least be offered the option of a combination IO chemotherapy in that setting. So as you said, if you get the insurance to, to approve it, then you could, you could give it. Okay, well, uh, we're right on time. Thank you again for sticking with us tonight. It's great to see everyone in person and looking forward to future meetings. Thank you again. Have a good night. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. This activity is developed with our educational partner, the Head and Neck Cancer Alliance. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HVY860. This activity is supported by educational grants from Coherus Biosciences Incorporated and Merck and Company Incorporated.